And five seconds of baseline silence, please, starting now. Really, Pat? <laughs> starting now. You're good, Pat. Hey, everybody, and welcome to... Oh, my gosh. You're stepping all over me, Joe. <laughs> Everybody and welcome to episode thirty-one of the Flight Test Community Podcast. Today we have guest host Tucker Gott. If you are not aware of Tucker Gott, you should be. Um, he is a uh, member of the Aviator PPG, and he has an amazing YouTube channel that uh, everybody should go and binge watch because it, it really is it, it's fantastic. Um, uh, so, um, thank you for thank you for joining us today, and uh, we're <laughs> we're gonna get going while Joel is on the phone. I wonder what he's talking about right now. It's probably talking about uh, groceries. Yeah, I'm sure because he is. his wife is at the grocery store right now. Um, so, so anyway, Tucker, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Yeah, so absolutely. <laughs> Oh, first one ever, huh? Yeah. Oh, oh wow. fantastic. So we can climb it first. Yeah. Score. <laughs> Sorry about the, the phone call there as Pat was doing the introduction because, uh, Tucker, we met very, and I mean, this was super brief because you were just getting in from a flight. And I know I was totally interrupting you. Like, I didn't even realize at the time you were just trying to get the Mosa that you had just purchased. Um, worn in and i had come in i was like oh my goodness i have to introduce myself that's tucker i recognize him from the youtube show i gotta see if he'll come on a podcast and of course i i was super awkward about it i will admit i was awkward about it because i was totally fanboying out which is totally cool um but you were gracious enough after uh, reaching out on Facebook to come on board and uh, share your incredible wealth of knowledge about uh, paramotoring. And uh, I think uh, we've got a, uh, some questions lined up for you um, about kind of where you came from, where your history is with paramotoring and aviation in general. And uh, our friends over at Aviator PPG also, uh, a little bit of history behind that and as uh, Pat was alluding to with the Paradigm Aerobatics team that I know Flight Test is working with you guys on some really cool new technology um, on board your Paramosas, which is pretty neat as well. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so um, let's get underway. Pat, I know, is like chomping at the bit. Oh, my. No, uh, in, in fact, uh, it, it's been a couple of months now, um, maybe even more. And I said, uh, there's this guy, Tucker God, who's got this YouTube channel. I'd really like to get him on the podcast. And then Joel went and he scored. Did it. Well done, Joel. <laughs> so, Thank you, meow. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I was like, as soon as I, I had met you in person, I was like, okay, that that's who we've got to have on the show next. That That's going to be my mission. And it, it's kind of coincidental in timing as well, because um, we didn't know at the time, but... Um, Paradigm is going to be coming up to Flight Fest um, in July, and you guys are going to be hanging out with um, Josh and the gang, uh, and also doing some demonstration stuff for uh, for uh, people who may not necessarily know about paramotoring. I guess that was kind of our intention with the show too, is to kind of give people who haven't had any kind of introduction to paramotoring a little bit of an insight of what it's like to be. It, paramotoring and, and being a pilot of a paramotor and also how approachable it is um, versus something like full-scale aviation. Uh, so that that's going to be really neat to kind of get into as well. Mike, do you have anything yeah. before we jump on? Oh, other than the fact I enjoy his video so much and I'm really excited to talk about the uh, little FAA thing he had going on too. So <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, we we have a good number of FAA stuff on the RC end, which I'm sure you're pervy to, uh, being a, a model aviator as well. So, right, <laughs> we'll definitely that, dive into that. That that was going to be my first question, Tucker. Is um, I know I I'm pretty sure watching one of your videos, I saw a radiant in the background. Um, so so yeah. where do you come from? in terms of uh getting into aviation what, what's your history with that my very beginning in aviation was really like my mom uh she was a hot air balloon pilot commercially like my entire life so my first memories of flight were in her hot air balloon like even when she was learning to fly i was like too small to see over the edge i was probably like two years old so i'd like look through the foothole and we'd go fly and that was pretty much my whole life growing up was helping out wow. with the That's um, awesome, dude. Yeah. The other big influence was my grandfather. He was a fixed-wing pilot um, way back when, flying like Cubs and deer plus guns. He went into the Air Force as a mechanic on a P-17, and he was a super big influence in getting me into aviation, wow. too. So yeah, it's pretty uh, much... Adam... Adam Drain, are you listening? <laughs> that's too. Fun. That's fantastic. It, yeah, it's kind so, of funny. Um, go on, Pat. It, it, so it, you said your mom got into commercial hot hot air balloon operation. Did she have any background in aviation prior to that? Um, she didn't actually. Um, just through her father, who was my grandfather. Okay. Okay. He, uh, so she just decided one day, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a hot air balloon pilot. Yeah. So basically, the way that went, um, the area I live in, they say, is the second most popular for hot air ballooning. And prior to her getting involved, we would always see hot air balloons like fly over our house, and uh, we were interested in it. So she ended up like we would get in the car and follow them, just like the chase crew that normally follows them, and um, eventually we made friends with them. 
one thing led to another. We That's started fantastic. out, uh, and eventually they invited her to fly in the balloon, and she got a ride. And then after that, she was hooked and wanted to do it commercially herself. So. That's how she got into it. Has she ever been, uh, has she ever flown a paramotor? No. Um, I've talked to her about it. I don't think she's interested in trying it, though. Really? Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. I, I, I would think that would ruin the whole balloon thing. <laughs> So, so then from the the ballooning my my understanding is that you you also have a background in skydiving as well so what what where's the history with the skydiving um skydiving so i got my license private pilot's license at the local airport and that was through the relationship with my grandfather he learned to fly at the same airport uh when he was younger so i got my license there i was always a part of that airport kind of growing up and uh, skydiving operation moved in there and their second year of operating they hired me to drive the golf cart uh, get people checked in with waivers and like put on harnesses so the first year I worked doing that the next year after that uh, it was like my senior year of high school and I started packing parachutes for them so Fantastic. I did like, four years of that and eventually got into skydiving once I was old enough Wow. So here's what I love about that. So you can still be one of those airport brat kids who just hangs around and you can build into, you know, we've all heard stories uh, of, of people who said, as a kid, I washed airplanes and I traded that for flight lessons and you know, it's absolutely fantastic that you had an airport where you could do that at yeah. because that is, yeah. that's like the quintessential kid's dream coming true right there. And yeah. this is what I like so much about your channel because you are like one of those young guys who is living a dream that so many of us have and it's so encouraging to see that taking place yeah like you said like the whole airport thing like i was back pulling weeds and scrubbing floors at the airport when i was a kid and i had the dream of like flying a paramotor way back in middle school and finally like everything has come true i and flying paramotors like all the time and i'm able to inspire people just in the way that i was inspired by youtube videos so that's awesome mm, right and you are inspiring because you, yeah. your videos really inspire me or more like antagonize me because i so <laughs> i so want a paramotor now <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. and uh you know kind of kind of going off of that so you're skydiving, you know, packing the backpacks and all that for skydiving. Did that kind of directly lead to the next progression of deciding to go into paramotoring? Or was there a, like a push other than your per se dream? Uh, not too much. I mean, the first three years, I think, of working at the skydiving place, um, I didn't actually skydive. First, I was too young to even go on a tandem, and um, I actually got into paramotoring before I did my first AFF, like on my own skydive. So it was always a dream to fly paramotors, and 
it just kind of happened while I was working at this Skyhack place. That's fantastic. So then that kind of leads on to your introduction to Aviator PPG because that's where you had learned originally um, your your paramotor training was from Aviator PPG. How how did you hear about it? Um, at the time, it was the summer right after I graduated high school, and I was just kind of sitting around and thinking. It's not much to do this paramotor thing I've really wanted to do for a while. And I basically decided like before I start college at the end of the summer, I need to do this. And, um, I had finally saved enough money to do it. I researched online. Uh, I found aviator PPG through the YouTube channel, found their website and ended up giving Eric a call. And he was just, we kind of like clicked personalities. I kind of knew it was going to be, a good experience with him so mm-hmm. there, um, I think about three and a half years ago now and that was my introduction to paramotoring so you've only been flying for three and a half years in a PPG yeah wow unbelievable that's amazing <laughs> and, and first of all I, I can attest Eric is incredibly persuasive I had zero idea of paramotoring prior to because I, I don't even think I got a chance to really tell till you tuck in the story um, but my introduction to Aviator PPG was flight test had already pre-arranged to go down to spend the week with Eric and just do the basic training to kind of go through to get video content for their full scale and he, they invited me to come down to actually feature a couple of new airplanes uh, and quadcopters that they had and to, you know, be a be a voice for the community, and as part of the beta building team, uh, be the voice of the beta builders. And it, I had zero clue that there was even a paramotor operation out of Lake Wales, which is forty five minutes down the street from me. Um, Eric was like, "Oh yeah, you got to come down and join us next time for our event," which is the coincidentally the uh, the, the event that I had uh, met you at, uh, and. I got the experience of going up in uh, Paramosa that day. And now I'm like, okay, now I've got to really start saving up this money for the training and actually go through with Eric. And he keeps bugging me. He's like, you better get in quick because we have no spots for the next year. Yeah. <laughs> That's totally much. That's hilarious. So, so kind of from there, um, so you're, you did, you went through the training. Tell us a little bit about the, the training experience and going through Aviator PPG training. Um, back then, it was way different than it is today. Um, I think it was within the first year that Aviator PPG was formed that I learned to fly with them. Um, so I met with Eric and you know, basically paramotor training consists of ground school training and like physical training and ground school stuff covers everything from what's uh, equipment knowledge mechanical stuff like that and then the actual physical training is uh, reverse kiting forward kiting once you master those uh, they put them all together and on the third day of training i think it was i was flying with the motor and that was like the best experience ever yeah it, it's it's that sense of 
as soon as that canopy produces lift and your feet are off the ground and then there's nothing between you and the ground and the sky in front of you you are you know i think you've mentioned it before and you know the guys at flight test have mentioned it it's the sense that you are flying in a lawn chair in the sky and it's just an unbelievable sensation and uh, you know the fact that you can feel absolutely everything that that wing is doing and the just the wind in your face uh, there's nothing there really is nothing like it yeah i had at the time about like 80 hours of flying experience in uh, cessna 152 and the thing i remember most of that first flight was just climbing up maybe the first 200 feet and looking out at everything in front of me and there's literally nothing but like your legs in front of you and it's just like this openness and freedom that you don't really get anywhere else well that's one of the things that i find so mesmerizing about your videos is just like the last one where you were talking about the faa where you were down right on those plowed fields man i i'm just watching that and i'm just totally like hypnotized by it that that looks like the ultimate experience in flight to me i, I it's it's incredible and you capture that so well yeah yeah that is absolutely like the best my favorite thing is if it's dead calm and literally there's like no turbulence to feel you're just like skating around on the air you can fly two inches off the ground hop over a tree row you can go up to two thousand feet and then see everything far around you drop back down do whatever you want now here's the question unbelievable how many days do you get where you can fly a, a considerable number of hours versus just like when the winds are calm early morning and late evening or early evening? Um, I mean, that's something that I think a lot of people don't really realize is how temperamental paramotor flying is to the weather. Um, like you can get away with flying midday sometimes given like the right weighing and the right skill set, but it's really not that fun because when the air gets turbulent, you start to lose the feel for the glider and you lose a little bit of control. So when like perfect conditions are when it's literally dead calm, the air is just glassy smooth. Mm -hmm. And that normally happens sunrise or sunset. Um, summertime back at home, I might get three to four days a week that I can either do a morning or an afternoon flight. But it like, really pays off when you get that sunrise or sunset flight yeah, you can't fly like a day like a Cessna can and not really care. But when you get that sunrise or sunset flight, when it's just glassy air, it's just the best. Yeah, and and that's when the video is spectacular too. Yeah, <laughs> that magical lighting, the golden hour. Kind of, kind of, kind of going off of that. Um, we do have a question from uh, one of our uh, viewers. And for the 20 or so that we have viewing right now, thank you guys for joining us. Um, yeah. The question is um, from Christoph says, in Belgium, it, uh, it is forbidden to fly over cities. What is the U.S. regulation? Can, uh, yeah. And 2 a.m. in the morning, he's watching it uh, from Belgium. Thanks, Christoph. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. <laughs> So, what is the uh, what is the regulations um, that you you are flying to? Because um, obviously you're you're based out of New Jersey, um, 
and it's a relatively rural area that you fly out of. So what, what are the constraints um, for flying paramotors? Because uh, it's a very specific class that's called out from the FAA. All right. So we're regulated under FAR 103, which is basically a really light aircraft. Um, they don't even classify it as an aircraft. It's an aerial vehicle. And there's only really a handful of regulations that we have to follow. But the one uh, the question is referring to is about like flying over cities. And basically in the U.S., you have to fly in uncontrolled airspace. So class E and G. And uh, other than that, you're not allowed to fly over people. So um, it kind of leaves it open enough for interpretation. But you can't fly over towns or cities and even like developments or congested roadways, baseball games, anything like that. You're not allowed to fly over. Right. So, so it's pretty much, you know, common sense stuff. Um, are you limited to a certain altitude? Uh, that's the great thing. Um, as long as you aren't over people, you're allowed to go as low as you want. And now that but, kind of comes with its own common sense, like you said. Uh, if you touch the ground, you're trespassing. If you're in the <laughs> air, then you're totally fine. But you don't want to like push it and be flying like in a way that's invading people's privacy, really. Right. And that's yeah. the whole thing that we're experiencing in the RC community right now, especially exactly. with AP platforms, is that... Uh, you know, people are getting shot down by others because people are flying over a property, and it seems like common sense to me that, uh, yeah, don't don't fly low over somebody's property, like over their home or their backyard or that kind of thing. If you're out in the farm field and you're, you know, you're dragging your feet through the tips of the wheat or whatever, that that's fantastic. But you know. It, it's all comes down to common sense and respect for people's privacy. Yeah, exactly. It's funny that, that there are so many similarities to, I mean, obviously there's a stark difference between what we do in the radio controlled scene versus what you're doing, which is actually hanging under a canopy and flying. Um, but in terms of the privacy laws, I, I think a lot of similarities do pop up, which is um, we'll get into more of the FAA related stuff a little bit later on in the discussion, but it, it's so interesting that the classification of the different airspaces is a lot of what we're going through as well from a from a radio controlled perspective and it's interesting to hear the the kind of hands-off approach that the faa has to light aircraft versus uh radio control and that's something that we discussed at length during another one of our podcasts um with the airbears um which is an organization for search and rescue specifically by radio control vehicles yeah, it seems so like it's it's very different. Like you said, there's some similarities, and it seems like you guys in the RC community have hit this point where it's gotten way more popular with drones and things like that, where the FAA has just like updated the regulations, and we're still kind of in the position where the regulations are pretty limited for what we're doing, and moving forward, everyone kind of knows eventually they're going to update it and change the regulations a little bit and 
it's kind of at that time period where we want to be at like maximum responsible flying and making sure that we're part of um, like representing the community well so that these regulations come in a way that kind of favors us. Yeah. yeah. So, so I actually have a question about that as well. So do you think that the RC community is bringing to light the things that you guys are doing now? Um, I don't know. I think it's kind of a model almost of like how the FAA has handled the regulations that maybe they might uh, do a similar thing in the paramotor community as they've done with the RC community. Um, but yeah, I think the way it's expanding right now, there is a lot more light shining on us because the community I think is growing more right now than it ever has. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, with, with so, so much of the, so much of the social, so much of the social media, YouTube, you know, what you're doing and all that, I can see how, you know, it can start growing like that because there's more access to people seeing what's happening because I've seen it a few times, you know, previous to, well, your videos. And then of course with, with aviator PPG doing what they're doing with flight test, but I've seen a huge, you know, expansion of, of a lot of things because of the social media, which I think is fantastic for the hobby. But at mm -hmm. the same time, it brings a lot of light that you don't necessarily want shining on you. So they do kind of leave you alone. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, right. It's a careful balance. And I think the good thing or one of the good things that's going to come from expansion is like, at the current pace, there's not a huge market and a, not a huge industry in the paramotor world that things like new engine technologies or new wing technologies, there's not a whole lot going on to fund like further research, like making new advancements. But I think that when that economy opens up more and more, more people are doing it, that maybe we'll see manufacturers like coming out with newer engines that are lighter, more yeah. powerful. Like that. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're definitely seeing that in terms of the radio controlled industry right now, especially with the racing quads. And the interesting thing is, is how the speed of development um, racing quads, we, we always joke about it in the radio control community because uh, uh, a year in regular time is five years in drone racing time. And the speed of progression is just explosive because of the number of people in the community. Um, as you mentioned, the community for paramotoring at the moment is still pretty small. And if you're seeing that growth, then it's going to only encourage more companies to kind of get in there and launch product and develop product that is designed specifically for you guys. So I'm I'm definitely curious to see uh, um, where that's moving forward on that and kind of transitioning beautifully. Um, what What is um, the equipment that you're currently running uh, for your paramotor setup? Um, the motor I'm running right now, it's a Scout paramotor. It's unique in its design that it uses aerodynamic torque compensation. So like torque is a big thing in the paramotor world because we're dangling from strings and handle the torque properly. You can spin around or uh, get really bad uh, like control issues because of the torque. So the Scout has like these fins that uh, counteract the torque. Most paramotors counteract the torque by offsetting something in the harness, basically so you're putting more weight on one side than the other to fly in a straight line. And that works at one throttle setting, 
but if you're at higher power or lower power, you'll see a trim in a, a, a different direction. Uh, but the scout, since it's aerodynamic, the more power you add, the more air is forced through the uh, fins and the more compensation you get. So it's oh, a cool, cool. design. Yeah. So it's almost like it has a built-in trim to compensate for, for that, whatever that right-hand rule is for the, for the torque. Exactly, yeah. And it works really well. Um, I've flown a couple other paramotors, and I think the Scout is the most true to neutral. And the the wing that you're flying as well, so correct me if I'm wrong, you're flying a Viper or a Snake? Uh, the wing I own is a Snake uh, XX, and the one I've been flying like in the Sun and Fun show and with the Paradigm team is a Viper 4. And I think that's... Yeah next wing I want to go to. And, and talk a little bit about uh, the difference that size makes in the performance of the wing. Um, just because a lot of a lot of our listeners aren't, aren't particularly familiar with what what it what characteristics of a wing differentiates the style of flying. Right. So there's two different factors I guess. One is like what the wing was designed for. So there's like beginner wings, there's um, cross-country wings, and then there's like slalom acro wings. Um, and depending on where you're at, it affects how the wing handles dramatically. But then also within each category, depending on what size you get, affects the way it flies dramatically. And each wing pretty much has a chart that tells you what size is for what weight range. And you can be heavy or light on a wing basically, and if you're light on the wing, it might not fly the way it's intended to fly. If you're heavy on the wing, it's going to be more twitchy. Um, so the wing I fly is a 16 meter, and it's pretty much the smallest that's um, like readily available. They do make 15 or 14 meters, but most of the time that's like a special order kind of thing. And basically just a small wing, it's loaded heavily. Um, it causes the wing to roll faster, respond quicker, but it also requires more power to climb, more power in turns. And generally, uh, you gain efficiency the more advanced you go on a wing, but also the smaller you go, uh, you lose efficiency. So you come down a lot quicker too. Gotcha. Well, that makes okay. sense. You guys, you guys got anything before I load in with another question? Yeah, yeah. Um, there there was a funny. question earlier in, uh, about the the glide slope or the glide ratio of a of a paramotor wing. Um, so, so if you're flying along and your um, your motor quits, uh, what kind of glide ratio do you have? Uh, it, to me, I, I'm thinking this is probably one of the safest ways to fly because. You know, basically, you're flying under a, a, a parafoil. Yeah, you you always have that open. So it's like, generally, they say around a 9 to 1 glide ratio. But in general aviation, like airplanes, they come with a handbook that tells you all the specifications. But in the paramotor world, it's not like that. Um, it's more just like see things with your own eye of how far you're going to glide. Uh, so it depends on like how heavy the wings loaded, uh, the size well, of the and stuff like that. Maybe this, is, maybe this is a better way of asking it. What is the tightest space that you could land in? Um, 
I mean, that depends on obstacles, but I can land in less than like 20, 30 feet. But if you put trees around a field or something, then it gets tricky. Right. So, so basically, if you were flying somewhere and you, your motor quit, unless you were over an expanse of forest, you, you right. have lots of options. Yeah. And that's like we're flying with two stroke engines and generally they're really reliable, but they're still two stroke engines. And we basically mm-hmm. decide that we're going to assume it's going to fail at any point. That means don't fly over a forest unless you want to land in it or don't fly over a lake unless you want to land in it. Right. It, it, so, and, mm-hmm. and you were making a point of, of talking about that in, in, it was either your most recent or next to most recent video where you were coming up on the tree line and you were saying, you know, uh, don't hit the throttle at the last moment because you, know, you, you either want to have enough to make it over the tree line or to be able to bank out and turn and land. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, it's literally as safe as you make it. If you always consider that your engine's going to die and you fly high enough and you always have a landing option, you'll pretty much always be okay in the case of landing out. Uh, I tend to trust my motor in some situations because of like a greater reward. So, like, the video I posted recently, falling over or flying over the Blue Falls, that was some sketchy terrain that. If your engine went out, you could be in the water and you could be in serious danger or other mm-hmm. situations. It, you'd be okay, but maybe you'd break your ankle because the train just wasn't forgiving underneath you. But I tend to just think like it's worth that reward of getting to fly over such an amazing thing that I'll just take the risk and trust my motor for like two minutes. I hope it's not going to die just to get that. Well, that that's another interesting question, like, because I've seen your videos where you're flying off the coast in Florida. And uh, so what, what would happen if you went down in the ocean? How could you get out of that quickly enough to survive? Uh, or if you couldn't, is that enough to wait to drag you down? Yeah, that's the thing. Um, water landings apparently kill the most people in the sport. And... Mm. They have flotation, but without flotation, it's really dangerous to fly over water. Um, if you go in, normally you have about five buckles to undo, and your paramotor will probably float for a little bit, but then it's going to start sinking. And you also have the glider in the water with all the lines that can easily wrap you up and um, just make it impossible to get out. So they have these flotation devices that generally they have like a CO2 cartridge and a little sensor. So if you go into the water, they'll inflate and keep you uh, above the surface so that you can get out safely. But yeah, flying over water is a huge risk unless you have uh, flotation. Right. Or, or unless you're comfortable enough with your altitude and close enough to the beach that you can make it to land. Right, exactly. Right, which uh, in any of the videos I've seen you fly in, it seemed like you were close enough to the to the beach that had you needed to, you would have been able to make it. Yeah, I have a video from last summer. I was flying out of the Delaware River, and it was just full commitment yeah. the whole time. Foot dragging the water, and just assuming if I went down, I'd be in the water. But I had flotation. So. Okay. 
Yeah, I, I was actually going to comment on that video, funnily enough, and and mention that I, I I specifically remember watching the Delaware River one and you making it a very 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 prominent point at the beginning of the video. I have flotation if anything goes wrong, and I think in a previous video you had mentioned an interest in doing it, but refuse to do it without proper flotation. Exactly, and now I carry a hook knife um, mainly for like the lines, or uh, I have a reserve that I carry in the front and the front mount is nice because it's easily accessible but it also adds an obstacle to get out of the harness so I have a hook knife too just in case I get tangled up I can start hopefully cutting my way out do you carry a, a reserve chute or any kind of chute in case if in if the wing fails yeah I have I fly with it I'm going to say 99.9% of the time it's a okay. reserve parachute and it's just a round canopy. It's pretty like, primitive the way you use it. It's not like a skydiving system where you pull one handle fall to the other, you eject the canopy and the reserve right. basically right. is guaranteed to come out. Um, parabolic reserves or paragliding reserves. You basically grab a handle, pull it, it pops some pins, and then you have this little ball of a parachute on the end of like a tether. And you have to like look for a clear space in the air, depending on like what's going on. If you're spinning, um, you want to throw it into a clear area that's not going to get tangled in your wing. And mm-hmm. that goes out on those lines, and this big round canopy opens up. Yeah, uh, I've seen a couple of videos. Like there was one from Hungary or somewhere over in, in that area where a guy, where a large bird got tangled up in the in the parafoil lines, and it's just that kind of thing, like randomness that you wonder, you know, what what happens then? Right, it's it's like a thousand dollar insurance policy. Like some people don't fly with them, and it's like even if you never use it, it's there for you. Yeah, a thousand dollars is not that expensive when it comes to saving your life. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I definitely don't blame you for for wanting to have a reserve and or using a reserve and or when it's necessary. Uh, talk a little bit about the possibility of wing or uh, the canopy collapsing because I've, I've heard you mention a couple of times in videos that if the turbulence is right or if there's some kind of adverse wind condition it can cause the canopy to collapse um, and the airfoil to collapse so what what are the situations that, that could potentially happen and how recoverable are stalls of that nature so I think this depends a lot on decision making and like I said before there's a range of like wings and uh, beginner to like the advanced wings and the beginner wing uh, I posted a video recently where I collapsed the wing asymmetric collapses and B stalls and those wings are so forgiving like you could take a major collapse on that and it's going to come right out pretty much without you doing anything the wing I fly normally the 16 meter snake if you took a collapse on that, it's not going to be good. So the decision making comes in if you are flying like midday, I would tend to take the beginner wing instead of the snake because I know the consequences of the snake taking a collapse are going to be pretty bad. Um, the other part of that question is like, what situations could a collapse happen? One thing is midday flying. When there's thermals happening, uh, that creates a lot of turbulence and in the right conditions, a thermal can collapse your wing. 
The other big one is mechanical turbulence. So if there's like a hill or a building, a tree line, anything that will disturb the air, and the air is moving fast enough downwind of that, you're going to get some crazy turbulence. And that comes into the decision making of if you're flying next to a hill, don't fly downwind of it because the air is going to be bad. That would be scary. Um, but no, I uh, I remember specifically wh- because that was th- that's the wing that Jacqueline now has um, the beginner wing that you were uh, uh, doing the stall tests on. I remember specifically you had mentioned there's some kind of construction inside the what what you call those the air intakes where the air comes into the foil and produces the airfoil. Um, there's a structure in place to keep those panels open to take in the air as uh as it's flying and i remember you mentioning when you had done the stall and after the wing completely recovered it was almost instantaneous and it was all because of the way that the wing was structured like that yeah the the entire wing in itself is designed for stability and safety so i was even surprised like how easily it recovered um like i've never done that type of collapse on a wing before and it was like not even a big deal wow <laughs> so so tucker ha- have you ever had to use that reserve chute luckily i haven't i know a couple guys that have but yeah i've practiced the motion of throwing it every so often but i haven't had to throw one yet okay i couldn't imagine what that would be like to to have to do that i bet that would just be scary as anything yeah i'm sure i've watched a lot of videos of people throwing them and i can't imagine too. it's one of those things where things uh probably happen really quick but in your brain it's in slow motion um yeah it's where you you think to yourself i have to do this sequence to make it happen and i don't know hopefully you practice enough that that you can do that without really having to to think step by step i guess it is yeah uh, exactly in skydiving i've had a few like minor malfunctions nothing like crazy but one of the situations is like eight line twists and that takes a little while to get out of and in that moment you just become completely focused on like, this is the problem. This is what I need to do to fix it. And this is the amount of time I have to fix it or I'm initiating my uh, reserve sequence. So it becomes like tunnel vision. You're locked in on that situation when it's happening. Right, right. And all you can do is is go through that sequence and, and hopefully you're proficient enough that you get through that sequence in the adequate amount of time. Yeah, exactly. So... So uh, Chip Hunter has a question. Is there any way to safely deploy, deploy it in training? I mean, can you really train for that? Or is it, I mean, it, it, as far as at least trying it once or doing it once, I mean. Um, there's two things that come to mind with that. One, they have SIV clinics, which is basically you get towed up behind a boat um, without a motor, just a harness and a wing. And mm-hmm. they walk you through different um, collapses and things of that nature with the instructor on the radio and they do like tons of preparation beforehand but you never intentionally throw the reserve but sometimes in those classes you do initiate 
a scenario that you can't recover from, so they throw the reserve. And they do it over water so that you're safe and the boat just picks you up. The other one is actually interesting. Sure. They have some setups. Um, sometimes they do these reserve packing clinics because uh, perimeter reserves aren't really like regulated like skydiving reserves are for repack. Right. So they'll teach you how to repack your reserve and they make this giant zip line and you hook in on uh, your paragliding harness with the reserve, you go down the zip line and you throw it at speed and it actually inflates and like slows you down. So that's pretty cool. Okay. Oh, I bet that'd be kind of fun. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to try that. Now that would be fun. <laughs> now, now there were questions earlier um, about, uh, and forgive me if while I was out taking my break, uh, you know, I had to go pee. Sorry. Um, yeah. That, uh, <laughs> dude, <laughs> So, well, I had to. Hi, welcome back, Joel. Yeah. Um. Anyway. Thank you. Um. So, so Tucker, uh, in terms of your girlfriend Jacqueline, um, did, did she go down to uh, Aviator PPG to get lessons? Did you teach her what What was the the sequence of getting her in the air? So, summer of last year, about a year ago, I started teaching her, and not like practice okay. instructor uh, i guess i'm capable of instructing people but i don't do it all the time and uh yeah i taught her how to kite got her in the air and at the time she got three flights on the equipment i had uh but then the motor ended up blowing up and she didn't get any flights until this year um we got the gear meter ppg and she got three more flights and now we're actually back down at aviator ppg right now and getting in on a class of other students that are learning and she's basically getting like a formal training is the proper training beneficial for her final progress i guess to to end goal um yeah so like the way i taught her was basically just learning the skill set because all of her flights are going to be under my supervision and um, some of the things that Aviator has, like, I don't have access to. They have, like, simulators and witch toe things for uh, the training. So there's things that they have that will help her skill set. But in addition to that, like, I've taught her some stuff about weather, stuff about airspace. But that sort of thing's never extremely important for her to know fully because anytime she's flying, she'd be with me. But the students that Aviator are turning out, those guys are going to go home and they need to know everything about the regulations, about the weather, uh, about airspace, so that they're safe pilots. And that's kind of like the bigger, deeper knowledge that we're kind of going through right now. Perfect. And not that I'm knocking your training at all, because I am sure you are a phenomenal trainer. Um, but just, just to kind of see the, the different perspective of something like what i'm getting at is predominantly for the community of what we're trying to push is we're trying to push good training practices and one of those things that we have even mentioned even when i did uh, a, a little bit of a chat on this show about my experience at the event i said there is nothing more important than proper training at the end of the day 
because the training is going to get you not just the skills, but also you're going to get a network of people who, if you have a question about anything, you can now ask that question. If you're doing it on your own, you only have the resources of the internet and Google. And truly, how powerful is that versus the proper training? Right. Yeah, that's one thing that I try to emphasize on my channel too with more people getting into it. It's amazing how many people think that they should just buy something on eBay and try it out. And it's like, one, that's extremely unsafe, but there's so much information to take in. And having it in a course is like extremely beneficial to be a safe pilot and not injure yourself in the process. So mm -hmm. that's something I try to convey a lot too. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's, it's kind of like it comes across. It's kind of like the idea of self-taught scuba diving. Probably not a good idea. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's people that have done it, but it's definitely not a good idea. Yeah, success rate is not near as good. <laughs> it's the failure rate. Right. Yeah. The oh is, yeah. This, the failures aren't good. Like, you yeah. Don't want oh yeah. No, you're, you're talking about life and death here in terms of failure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. Now. I, I've seen I've seen a couple of videos where um, I don't know what the event it was some kind of event on a beach and this guy was flying and his I don't know if his his wings stalled or what but the the whole thing the canopy collapsed um, so are there bad manufacturers out there right now i mean I, i'm guessing you could buy some really inexpensive parafoils or whatever you call them and, and go fly that that might not really be a good idea to do yeah um there's definitely in the like modern industry there's companies that are like on the leading edge there's some that just, like copy design um, most of the stuff that's like modern and being updated today is pretty safe. Um, but with that being said, like the situation you talked about, there are certain links that have limitations that you need to read the manual and know. For example, like the wing I fly, it has a speed system, and if you engage the full speed system, if you pull on the main brake toggle to try to do a turn, the wing can and will collapse pretty violently. So that's something like you need to know the limitations of your equipment for it to be safe. And that's your speed bar, is that correct? Um, the reflex technology, basically. Uh, it's something that mm. it shifts all of your load onto the A's and B's, the first two lines, while the rest of the wing basically is unloaded. So in full speed, full reflex, that mindset is unloaded, and if you tug on it, when it's like that, that's when a collapse can happen. Oh, wow. Well, that's it, incredible. It, here's, that brings up a, a question that I have. Can you explain the the terminology for the different uh, lines? You've got, you've got your brakes, you've got your trims, you've got, you know, letters that designate certain lines that are going up to the canopy. Can you explain that some? Sure. So generally, most wings are like a four-line setup. And what that means is there's A's, B's, C's, and D's. And basically, the A's are on the front, the leading edge, and then it goes back to the trailing edge. 
Um, and then you have your brake lines. So the brake lines connect all the way at the trailing edge. You got one on each side. And in flight, it's super simple, super easy. You pull the right one, you make a right turn. Pull the left one, you go left. And for a landing is when you would generally pull both. And you pull both, it's called a flare. And it just slows you down for a landing. Mm -hmm. uh, now for the trim system, there's basically two ways to increase your speed. Because our speed is pretty much the same unless we alter our airfoil. Um, increasing power doesn't increase speed, it just makes us climb or descend. Gotcha. So to increase speed, you have the trim system and you have the speed bar system. Basically, the trim system is on the back edge of your risers, and the riser is the piece that connects to your paramotor, and it splits from like one connection point into four for your A's, B's, C's, and D's. The trim system is on the back of that, and it basically lets up the trailing edge of the wing, uh, and it, it decreases the angle of attack, so you go faster. And generally, the speed bar system is on the front edge, and it pulls the front edge down to decrease your angle of attack, so you go faster some more. And trims, generally, trims are like a set it and forget it. You let them out, and they stay stationary in one position, so you touch them again. The speed bar is more meant to be used actively, so it's operated by pushing this bar with your feet, uh, extending your legs, and that can be like pushed to go fast real quick, and then you can line it up to slow down. So it's more of like an active yeah. type thing. I know Eric is very fond of his speed bar, especially for the slalom type things that he likes doing. <laughs> That's kind of great. So I noticed in one of your videos you were you were testing a speed bar system. Is that right? Yeah, so I generally don't fly with speed bar. And that video you're talking about, I was uh, kind of testing the efficiency. There's two ways you can really use speed bar. Like you can put it out, lock your legs, and just go really fast in a straight line at an altitude like cruising or across country. Or you can use it in a slalom type of thing. So really in the US, slalom isn't that popular. It's like a big thing in Europe. And basically they set up these pylons and they race around the pylons as fast as they can. And the purpose of the speed bar and that application is on the straightaways, you push it out and you go as fast as you can. And then when you want to go around a pylon, you kind of simultaneously initiate a turn and drop the speed bar and it slows you down into a turn. You car around the pylon and then you stomp on it again and you go fast again in a straight line. Um, so that I haven't really gotten into much and honestly it doesn't interest me too much. But uh, for that one flight I was kind of testing the efficiency because at certain a certain turn range, you have like the best fuel burn over time, and you have like the best uh, fuel burn over distance, and basically full speed and full speed or full trim and full speed bar is like your least efficient, but you're going the fastest. So that was right. what I was playing with. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a guy named Marco uh, is asking if you've ever been in contact with Paul Anthem. He's a PPG for morons. Uh, I've never talked to him, but yeah, I've watched a lot of his videos, and a lot of his videos are pretty old. Like when I was back in middle school, I was watching those. Okay. okay. Oh, that's too funny. Interesting. Yeah. 
so uh, and this is uh, going again back to the equipment real quick but you are um, shooting off of uh, two GoPros whenever you're flying as well uh, one is I'm assuming on your helmet and the other is on your foot yeah sometimes I put it on my foot um, sometimes I put it on like a selfie stick GoPro cam thing but yeah the foot mount is easy have you ever dropped your phone? Because that worries me in your videos. Yeah, it's Actually, we were talking about that today at Aviator. Um, a lot of people have commented recently, like, you need to tether your phone, you're going to drop it. <clears throat> and I've never dropped it. I know people who have dropped their phones. But I talked to a guy today that actually tethered his phone, and he dropped it twice. But what happened was it swung back and went in his propeller. And it actually made oh. it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'd rather just fall uh, away and see that. Yeah. yeah, that that would be me though. I would I would drop my phone every time I got in the air. That would... Yeah, <laughs> pull it out and the wind hits it, and it kind of wants to throw it out of your hand. Mm-hmm. So so oh boy. So on the note of dropping things, we we talked about this a little bit before we officially began the podcast, but but you were reported by someone by uh, to the FAA and. The FAA found that you had nothing wrong. Um, so uh, your your uh, video where you dropped uh, water balloons on a vacant park that you often fly from that was covered in snow. I, I'm guessing that was back in March because that's when we got the big snow up here. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it killed my redbud tree. I'm really unhappy about that. But anyway. Um, so, <laughs> and in terms of unhappy, you, your, your, uh, food colored water didn't really do that much, but, um, somebody reported you and quoted about, um, not being allowed to drop, uh, from a PPG, but they didn't include the exception that said, as long as it didn't endanger people. Uh, it's right. fine, which it didn't because it, it yeah, was no there was no one there. That it was a snow-covered park. Um, so can you talk a yeah, little bit? Playing with that battery. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, uh, you're 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 doing something, and it's making your audio all staticky, man. Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, can you talk about your experience with the FA and that whole thing, please? Yeah. So. The way I explained in the video was that I first heard of it through an email because the person went out of their way to take these reports. I guess they copied and pasted off of the form that you fill out to the FAA, and they sent it to the township that they thought I was flying from, uh, but it was actually a neighboring township. And I happen to have a friend that works there, and he got in contact with me saying that someone was complaining. And uh, basically, yeah, the report said that I was dropping something and I wasn't allowed to. Um, and they even went as far as they put in the, the uh, timestamps in the video. One of them I dropped and I was like, oh, that one's going really far because it had like, I was going downwind instead of into the wind. And still, I was over like three open soccer fields and it, it went like one soccer field over. But there was no one around. Uh, at the park for it to even hit so yeah they were basically trying to incriminate me and um the other one they had the water one and the night flight and they said i wasn't allowed to fly at night but you are allowed to fly 30 minutes after 
not sat for 30 minutes before sunrise as long as you have a stroke. And the whole premise of that video was that I got a strobe from a subscriber sensitivity. I was testing it out flying after sunset with my strobe legally. And that one I even showed my cell phone at the end showing it. It was less than 30 minutes after sunset and I was on the ground. And uh, yeah, I got that email and it kind of made me pretty nervous even though I knew that I had followed the FARs. And I tried to be proactive. I gave the FA a call. Uh, didn't get through to anyone. They called me, left a message. And eventually I got in contact with the guy. And I was pretty nervous talking to the FA, but immediately, like he said, I just want to tell you, like, before we start the totally fine. Like, we looked at everything. And uh, I sent the videos to the higher up people, whoever that is, uh, from the local FISO. And they said, there's nothing wrong with what I did. I'm within the FARs, all the instances that were reported. So, yeah, overall, it was, like, I think a positive experience because I got a contact with someone at the BizDo. And mm -hmm. uh, we mentioned it earlier. Um, he actually wants to come out and take a look at my gear, see me fly, and kind of learn about paramotors and what is all about and i've even heard of uh, drone racing guys like doing the same thing yeah, yeah exactly and i got some comments that were like yeah that's a great idea you should do that be like a representative make it positive then other yep. people that were like no don't do that it just wants to hurt you uh they're gonna take your gear or something and yeah, i yeah. tend to think that that's not really the case like i think they're pretty sincere about it and they just want to yeah. help out and this is kind of a new area like we said is progressing and it's mm -hmm. good to make relationships like that where i can help them help the community well exactly and i, th I think you'll be a great uh, ambassador to do that too yeah you know and and, and on top of that, Mike, not just being an excellent ambassador, but to your point, Tucker, I think you're doing the due diligence in every one of your videos, pointing out the key areas where you are being safe and practicing safely within the confines of the FAR 103, which you are, by definition, flying by. Um, the, the, the gentleman you were mentioning who is currently under investigation by the FAA and has um, had two FAA reports is uh, a gentleman by the name of Steele Davis, who everyone knows as Mr. Steele. And he, you know, pro pilot, he is part 106, which is um, the new re uh, registration requirement and um, the, the part that you need to monetize any drone operations. Um, and by definition, in all of his videos, he is following all parts of that. Um, the interest, what where it gets interesting, and this is where uh, a lot of people are getting hung up in the community and kind of bringing it back to the RC uh, for a second, is there are two distinct organizations that are, that are at play, and I'm not sure if there's something similar within Paramotoring, and I'm sure you'll bring this up as, as we go through this, but you have the FAA, which is the governing body of the airspace of the United States, 
And then you also have in model aviation an organization called the AMA, which is the which I'm sure you're familiar with, um, which is the Academy of Model Aeronautics. And the AMA has a specific set of guidelines for being a member and getting the insurance necessary in order to uh, to fly radio controlled aircraft. There is some crossover between the two organizations and then there are some gaps that are within 106 and um, a lot of people are thinking by looking at steel stuff that he is following both and in actual reality he is only following the pot 106 so he 107. is doing things yeah. like flying it's, around buildings. It's 107. he is sorry 107 107 sorry you're right um so he's following the part 107 you know he's he's flying around buildings he's not flying over people he's uh, he's being safe about his operation checking the aircraft and all of that but he's not following the AMA which says do not fly within X feet of a building if you want to be covered um, etc etc so is there an organization um, for paramotoring or light aircraft that you can be a member of that either provides insurance or um, you know, information, a network, a club, or something like that. Yeah, um, it's called the USPPA, uh, Powered Parabody Association, and it's kind of similar. I think it basically has like a structure of a syllabus and a rating system that pilots can get. And as far as I know, um, where it comes into play is at, like fly-ins. Uh, certain fly-ins require this USPPA rating in order to fly there for like insurance purposes. Um, as far as I know, it doesn't go much farther than that, but it's kind of along the lines of if they're going to create more regulations of like a rating system and a syllabus, it's basically already there in the USPPA. Okay, well, uh, that, that, that's really cool that that exists. Um, and uh, <laughs> Do you find that um, do you find that the public is overall viewing what you do as negative, or do you not get enough feedback from the public to know that? Because the reason I ask that is that I feel that um, the public does not view the RC hobby today as being a positive thing. Due to the media frenzy that has, they've whipped up this whole hysteria about quote-unquote drones. Mm -hmm. I think in the paramotor world, um, in my experience, it's been like almost 100% positive. I think like nationwide, there's a couple like bad eggs that have done certain things that um, got on like larger news organizations that were really bad for the community. And like you said, makes um, the general public think that we're bad people. But in my experience, flying from like the local airport and uh, interacting with pilots, which normally you wouldn't think is a good match, like a, a paramotor without a radio flying around the airport, and also flying around at the local park where sometimes there's soccer games, uh, there's people walking on trails and stuff like that. Almost 100%, I've had good positive experiences where people still even follow me and like be driving on the road somewhere and they'll follow me to land and they'll just want to talk about how cool it is and how they can get involved. And, um, kind of like 
<laughs> kind of like what I did. <laughs> yeah. only, oh, that's fantastic. A negative experience. Um, sometimes farmers have an issue with you flying over their fields. And I think where the line crosses is sometimes farmers think that they own the air that you're trespassing or that you have to be above 500 feet, which is a lot for like general aviation, private airplanes. But for us, restrictions so we can legally fly one foot above a farmer's field and they sometimes have misinterpretation about that but the danger comes in if they have livestock under FR-103 you're not allowed to fly in a way that endangers uh, persons or property so the cattle is their property if you fly in such a scare and damage their property now you're doing something illegal um but everyone I know goes um, to their greatest effort to like avoid um, situations like that. We fly over open farm fields all the time, but if there's ever a question of like livestock or something, we stay completely away from that because that's a big no-no. Yeah, well, that would be that would be my luck if I was flying and just happened to go over a, a cow pasture. Knowing my luck, I would lose my motor, have to land there, and of course, the only bull I would land right next to and wouldn't be able to get away from it. You know what I mean? <laughs> the angry one. With the yeah, the, the big angry bull, angry. girl. Yeah, uh, that would be me. Yeah, all the way. Only you, Mike. Yeah, <laughs> Pat. Seriously, put the power to that microphone away. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you got going on, Pat, but every time you, yeah, you touch what? that table or something, man, your mic just starts this, going crazy. This? No, it's... Whatever, what, that, 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 stop that. Hello? It's crazy. Yeah, because you're playing with whatever it is that you're playing Hello? with. Hello? Oh, you, you lost it, didn't you? You disconnected. See what he did? He broke the thing. I told him not to play, and he broke the thing. I... Can you hear us yet, Pat? Oh, he's gone. <laughs> he's gone. <laughs> so this is normal, Tucker. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Um, so going and kind of changing... Uh, Eric. And Eric, by the way, Tucker, Eric just posted on my wall. Thanks for the invite. And I actually had invited him to see if he wanted to come on, but he always says that the connection over aviator ppg is terrible um <laughs> so moving on to um because we don't want to keep you forever because you are being so kind about your time yes with us and we don't want to keep you on for too much longer but you're welcome um, to hang out but, all you want yeah yes, absolutely um, the um, let, let's go into uh, the paradigm team and kind of where that kind of came from and where the where the roots came from of paradigm and how you got involved with the paradigm team. So the whole idea of a paramotor airshow act was kind of in Eric's heart and it was a dream of his to do, and um, it all basically came together. At, Oshkosh, EA Air Venture last year, uh, last summer, and I got a phone call. I was in Cole's shopping, and Eric calls me up, and he's like, hey, do you want to fly in a paramotor aerobatic team at Oshkosh? And I'm like, yeah, like, that would be amazing. Uh, but I was kind of, like, in disbelief, like, this is 
Oshkosh, like the world's biggest air show, and we're going to be flying paramotors like on the main stage. It seemed like a little crazy, um, but as time went on, uh, they had gotten FAA approval, and we basically formed the team uh, that summer. Got together a bunch of guys all the way from Spain, and France, and some in the U.S. We all came together and met for the first time, uh, like one week before Oshkosh. And we started training together. Uh, we had a general idea of what our routine was going to be, uh, how we wanted to incorporate pretty much every dynamic of paramotor flying into like a 12-minute show. Um, and it was like the most incredible experience as far as paramotor flying goes. Um, we all like clicked, which was amazing. Like all these uh, six guys that have never met each other before, we got together and we were all on like the same brainwave of flying and paramotors and just this passion to represent our sport. And everything started to come together. We practiced a whole lot, did our routine over and over and over again. Uh, got it really dialed in. And then Oshkosh came along. Um, and we were like the new dogs on the block. Everyone was just kind of looking at us like, who are these guys with their paramotors? Everyone kind of assumes that paramotors are these slow doggy aircraft and they're like what are these guys going to do in the air show and eventually our night came for the first uh, demonstration and it went like, amazing um, there were so many nerves leading up to the moment of launching in front of a crowd of hundreds of thousands of people and uh, just the anticipation coming up to the moment was like some of the most nervous moments I've had but as soon as we had that count, uh, like five minutes to go, we got closer and closer to go time, and it was just like focusing in on what we have to do. As soon as I got off the ground, it was just like, I've done this before. We practiced this so many times, just flying, and it was just amazing. Uh, climbing up over Oshkosh, seeing all the people and camera flashes and everything, it was insane. The whole routine went off perfectly. Um, I remember I came in for the landing and we got approval to land within like 10 feet of the crowd line. Uh, we had to shut our motors oh, off amazing. before we crossed a certain line. So I killed my engine and after that it's completely silent. And I made my turn uh, to final, came in, swooped in the crowd line and there's just like this roar from the crowd. Uh, it was really like, the most amazing experience. Uh, like, but yeah, after that, we did our second show at Sun and Fun, and this is really our first season that we're coming together as a team. Um, Oshkosh was kind of like the proving grounds, proof of concept, and it went amazing. Everyone loved the act, which was awesome uh, to see that we had the support of general aviation folks and the general public. They loved what we were doing, and it was just as exciting as Angels or someone like that. Uh, mm. that was awesome to have that support so this summer is really our first season uh, together so I'm super stoked on it yeah um, the, Oshkosh is such a magical environment and, and if people haven't yeah. been there you need to go there it, 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 honestly I was only there once and it was 1986 I graduated high school in 88 but I have so many, many memories from that experience. It, 
the, the top of which was watching uh, Chuck Yeager and Bob Hoover exchange stories on stage that were just phenomenal, hilarious, engaging. Uh, uh, oh my gosh, what a wonderful experience that was. And I have to get back there someday soon. It's, it's an awesome environment to be in. Yeah, it, it really is. Um, did you guys do Sun and Fun this year? Yes, he just said that. Sorry, uh, my bad. <laughs> Pat's ADD is kicking in. It um, is. But... <laughs> Sorry, Tucker. Um, that's okay. We'll, we'll forgive you eventually. Um, so, and, and as you said, it, it was kind of Eric's dream to have um, a team. And uh, I think Oshkosh is where you had originally met with the guys at Flight Test. Um, or at least Eric had met Flight Test and the gang um, down at uh, Oshkosh. And um, it, it was at that point that um, Eric had invited the guys to go down and, and organize all of that fun stuff. Um, but there's a, there's a very interesting piece of technology that flight test is helping develop with you guys can you talk on that a little bit um i kind of have limited knowledge on that it was it's mainly the guys at aviator Kyle in particular that's working with the guys at flight test and the basics of what i know about it it's basically a smooth system yep. yeah for well, Mike and I can talk on that a little bit because we saw it while we were there. Uh, Chad Lewis yeah. is working on a, uh, a smoke system that injects the uh, basically baby oil into the exhaust system that people use uh, to make air show smoke. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah I've actually uh, seen two iterations awesome. of it now. Yeah. So um, it, it's very close. Um, the only issue that I saw, Mike, um, was was that the vibrations on the frame were causing the the batteries to lose uh, contact. Contact, yeah. With the uh, well, with the contact points, um, and that's a pretty easy solution. So, yeah, yeah, and I'm sure Chad's probably got that working it worked out. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, let's double check here. Hey, can you hear me, guys? Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Sorry. Um, I'm very eagerly watching the time, and I know we've been going on for about an hour and a half here, uh, Tucker, and I don't want to don't want to take up too much more of your time, but do you guys have any final questions for Tucker before we let him go? Well, I, I know that Chip had a question about uh, if there was any real uh, FAA um Oh, um, where'd he go? Uh, oh, it's up here a little further. Um, he was asking if there was any FAA recognized instructors. I mean, that were like licensed FAA instructors, I guess. Not FAA licensed, but like we mentioned before, there's the USPCA. They have mm-hmm. certification programs basically that just gives you credibility you become an experienced pilot and you have knowledge of how to teach people how to fly so that's one right. resources that I point out if you go on the USPPA website you can do a search for local instructors you'll get big schools, small schools everywhere in between and 
those are the guys that fantastic so bottom line um there's there's a couple of sponsors that you have um do you want to give any of your sponsors a little bit of a shout out before we let you go uh so you and jacqueline can have a good night's rest so she can get to class tomorrow morning yeah we got 6 a.m tomorrow um (laughs) yikes As for sponsors, uh, I've got the guys at Team Fly Halo and the guys at Aviator PPG, and both of them are basically they're, they have their own training and instruction system, and then they also deal gear. So, really fortunate to have those guys supporting me. That's awesome. Fantastic. And uh, and again, we mentioned all of your uh, equipment use uh, at the beginning there as well. So, uh, Tucker, thank you so much for taking the time to come out. I know you unexpectedly took the trip down to Florida, um, but if if you want to hang out uh, in the next couple of days, let me know. We'll uh, meet halfway and grab a bite or something like that. Hey, I appreciate you guys having me on the show. Awesome. Oh, we appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. Dude, thank you so much because I truly am a, a big fan of yours and I've been watching your YouTube channel before I even knew about Aviator PPG. Uh, you do such an awesome job. And, and thank yep. you for coming, please. Thank you so yeah. much. Yeah, don't stop, man. <laughs> yep. And don't, don't, don't be afraid to give us a little bit of a plug either. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, dude, I totally look forward to meeting you at, uh, at Flight, Flight Fest this summer. Yes. Yep. And yeah, all of our equipment, all of our equipment is up for loan. If you want us to teach you flying multi rotors, which I know you've expressed interest yep. in, um, all of our equipment is free for you to yep. try out and see if we can get you uh, nipped on the RC FPV bug. Yep, radio, radios, planes, quads, whatever you want, bud. You got it. All you got to do is say the word. Yeah, we talked about it a little bit before. I kind of got out of the RC community and all that when multi rotors were really getting popular. Like I had a KK board quadcopter that I flew FPV on, but nothing like you guys have now. So definitely. Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, dude, you Think, are welcome to fly changed. anything I bring. So. Yep, appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, hey, have a great night, Tucker, and thank you for joining us. But all of our listeners and live listeners, don't go away because we have a part two coming up here in the next couple of minutes. Here, so yeah. Tucker, if you if you need to jump. Hey guys, I want to sincerely thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, then please go ahead and like and subscribe to us on YouTube. We have another really great episode, episode 32, releasing later on this week and some really, really exciting content uh, coming your way. For those of you who haven't heard yet, uh, we do have an upcoming build night that's going to be this upcoming Saturday, June the 17th, and that is going to be at 5 p.m. Eastern. 2 p.m. Pacific, and we will release more details on social media about that this week. So please go ahead, like us on Facebook to find out more details on that. Thank you guys so much again for listening. Blue skies, and we will see you on the next one.
And testing audio. Is it going? Oh, you know why? <laughs> it would help to be at the beginning of the time code, wouldn't it? Oh, you know.